And actually, it might surprise some of you. Turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. <clears throat> so we finished our study through Revelation. It took us almost nine months or around that in the fall and spring. And I told you several times our plan for the summer, if you plan to be here, we're going to be studying through the Old Testament book of Exodus. And I'm really looking forward to that study. Exodus, Exodus is far richer than I think a lot of Christians realize. It's, it's, uh, <clears throat> yes, it's a historical narrative, but it is so theologically dense and rich. Uh, as it points us forward to Christ and the work of salvation that he accomplished for us, the greater exodus. I had originally planned to begin that study today. I was just going to introduce the book and then start in earnest next week. Uh, but honestly, we were at staff retreat this past week, and I could use another week to prepare and, have, and do justice to a good overview of the book of Exodus. Um, and so, Lord willing, we'll kick that off next week. And, um, and then start with chapter 1, verse 1, the same week we start summer Bible study. So I think that'll be better. But I say that to tell you this. I encourage you between now and then, read through the book of Exodus yourself. Just, just read it. You, you, you're out of school now. <laughs> so um, take these couple of weeks and, and read through the book of Exodus. Maybe read through it more than once. Um, it, you, you will, I say this a lot. You will really get more out of our time here if you have read through the passage before we study through it. If you've read about it, thought about it, prayed through it, and then we study it, you just will be more enriched by that time. So I really encourage you to read through the book of Exodus carefully so that next week when I do give an overview of the book, it will be all the more familiar to you, and, and, and you'll get more out of it, all right? But for today, I thought, okay, if we're not going to study Exodus, what might we study this morning? I thought we might look at a well-known passage that I, that I think marries well thematically as a follow-up to all that we have considered in our study through Revelation. Um, it's the passage where in Ephesians 6 where Paul famously describes the armor of God. And just recall, just recall uh, from what we learned in the book of Revelation, um, and that's a lot that we learned, but I'm, I'm thinking specifically the difference between the first half of the book, and the second half of the book. Uh, do, you, do you remember how I said there were seven cyclical sections, but then there's a, there's a first half and the second half. Much like, it's much like, it's apocalyptic literature, so it's much like the book of Daniel. You know, Daniel, if you've ever read Daniel, you're trucking right along in the first half, and you're like, this is awesome, this is really fascinating, and then you don't even know what world you have entered when you get into chapter seven. So, but that's, it's the same thing going on in the first half of Daniel. You have, here's what's going on in the world, in history. And in the, in the second half is pulling back the curtains to the heavenly places, saying, this is what's going on behind the scenes in the heavenly places that's giving rise to what, you, what Daniel is experiencing in the world. Revelation is a lot the same way. Remember, the first half of Revelation in chapters 1 through 11 was very... Uh, this is what's going on in the world. You've got the letters to the seven churches, and it's very like what they're experiencing, the hardships that they're facing. Um, yeah, just very, this is the, the, the struggle of the church in the world. Uh, it's all about the persecution the church is facing, the perseverance that they're being admonished to, to take part in, and, 
But then you get to the second half in chapters 12 to 22, and like Daniel, it pulls back the curtains a little bit. And, it, and, and, and it, it, it's, it's seeking to make clear, like in Daniel, the spiritual realities, the spiritual forces that are going on in the heavenly places, that are active in the world, that are giving rise to what we experience, what the church experiences in the world, and the struggles we face. And, uh, and you put those two halves together, and the obvious overall admonition from the book of Revelation is to understand that in order to persevere in Christ, we need to press on knowing our enemy and also knowing Christ and all that we have in him. And, and this passage in Ephesians 6, I think, fits that same bill. Uh, this passage has probably, uh, this armor of God passage has probably been talked about and studied more than any other passage in Ephesians. There are whole Bible studies just on the armor of God. Uh, there's whole sermon series with a sermon on each part of the armor, but, but we're going, we got one morning, so we're going to get all, that we can, all the good we can get out of it all at once. But there's merit to looking at it in that way, too, because it's, um, it's really to, I think, when you take it so slowly and piece by piece, it's, it's easy to read way too much into it. Um, that I don't know that, that Paul meant. But, uh, and, and you missed the big picture. So here's our passage, uh, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Let's read it, and then we'll dig into it and see what Paul is teaching us here. Um, yeah, so beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, you know, I mean, this is the repetition of stand, 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 therefore. Having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, this uh, is your holy inspired, infallible, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word to us in written form. Lord, I pray that as we spend a few minutes around this text this morning, um, thinking and trying to link it to all that you admonished us, uh, how you admonished us in the book of Revelation and sort of putting a ribbon on that study through this text. I pray that you would give us eyes to see 
the truth here and to see it clearly and give us minds to understand it clearly and give us give us hearts to embrace and and see as important what Paul is saying to us here that this is important to stand firm stand firm stand firm um Give us wills to obey what he admonishes us to do. Give me the help that I need to teach, and please give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this is one of the richest passages in Ephesians. Um, if you're familiar with the structure uh, of Ephesians, you, you hopefully recall that Paul, it's six chapters. Paul spends the first half of the book, the first three chapters, just teaching the most basic fundamental truths of the faith the gospel in its, in its uttermost clarity, um, and um, yeah, just laying the, the, the indicative, truth, foundational gospel message that is foundation then for the last three chapters, 4, 5, and 6, which are application. How do we live out that truth that he just taught in the first half of the book? Uh, he, he, in the last three chapters, explains what it looks like um, to live out the truth of the first three chapters in our own holiness and purity, in, in our friendships, in the church, in marriage, in relating to authority, and on and on and on and on and on. Even in the passage right before this, he's still talking about that. Children and parents, slaves and masters. So for the whole second half of the letter, Paul has been would have been admonishing us in all these ways, and he's here in this chapter today going to describe it in terms of armor that, that God has given us in Christ to walk in that obedience in all of those ways. And we need to realize there's an urgency to it. Uh, I, I've, I've already pointed out, be strong in the Lord the strength of his might. It's just this, this, uh, that you may be able to, to withstand in the evil day. To, Having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. There's an urgency to it. I think our greatest problem is, is not just that we might forget uh, truth that we have in Christ, but also that there's an enemy against us and that, there were, that we're in a daily battle to walk in holiness, um, to be faithful. I think if we believe the truth of the first three chapters of Ephesians, which hopefully you're familiar with, and we seek to obey all the things that he's told us here, you can be sure that there's going to be opposition. We, Revelation really taught us that. And it may come in different forms, but there's a common source behind them. And Paul here is trying to get that point across to us. So as we take a closer look at this passage, it does seem to, to divide up fairly naturally into three parts, uh, at least in terms of what Paul is emphasizing. So as I see it, you could lay it out this way if you're taking notes. In verses 10 through 13, Paul is mainly describing the enemy uh, that we face daily as believers, as followers of Christ. He spends verses 10 through 13 highlighting the enemy that we have. And then in verses 14 through 17, he outlines the armor that we have been given in the battle against the enemy that we have. So the enemy, the armor, and then finally, in verses 18 to 20, he shows the power that we've been given uh, to fight the battle we walk faithfully in Christ. The power. So that's what I want us to see here. I'll try to make clear what I mean by some of that. So let's dive in and think first about, about each one uh, of these. Thinking first about the enemy in verses 10 to 13. And so 
uh, as Paul opens this passage in verse 10, like I said, he seems to have his focus on the enemy that we have in the world who, who seeks to keep us uh, from, from following faithfully after Christ in joyful obedience. Let's read the verse, those three verses again, or 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present, present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Man, I don't know if we, just go, if we tend to go around thinking of the world we live in in those ways. We're so disworldly. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, Paul clearly uh, introduces the idea of the armor of God in these verses. He says in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. He says in verse, again in verse 13, take up the whole armor of God. But he's not going to describe what that armor actually is until the verses that, that just follow this. His point here in these early verses is, in, in, in commanding us to take up and put on this armor of God for ourselves each day, according to him, is in view of the enemy that we face in the world uh, and the battle that we're up against. It's, just, it's not easy to walk in holiness and righteousness. And just look at the descriptions that he gave in those verses for the enemy that we face. Um, he, he says one, our enemy is the devil, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Just He heaps description on description on description on description. And he even describes in those verses the whole era in which we live. When you woke up today, when you wake up tomorrow, he describes all of this period of time as the evil day. The evil day. The whole point of these verses is to make very clear to us that we should not expect to follow Christ and to, to seek to follow Christ unopposed. Unopposed, unhindered. I mean, the book of Revelation made that very clear to us. Now, it is true, if you're familiar with, with Ephesians, that earlier in this letter, in chapter 2, um, Paul mentioned that we essentially have a threefold enemy in our lives as Christians. Um, if you want to, you can turn back to chapter 2 and look at it. He says in verse 3 of chapter 2, Paul mentions that we're basically our own worst enemy. Uh, when he, when he, just, he, he calls it our flesh. Um, among, we, in the passions of our flesh, we, we are first on the list. We're our own worst enemy. We, we, we carry out the desires of our body and mind, we, whatever we think, whatever we want. And, and by, by the way, um, you don't have to turn there, but like on this same point, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse, verse 17, that these desires that we have that are natural to my flesh, these desires that, that, that we have are opposed to God's desires. That, that uh, you know, so the, the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit. That's Galatians 5, 17. That we think in ways that, that don't honor God. We desire things that don't honor God, and it's constant. As, as soon as I have a thought that I want to walk in obedience to Christ, my own flesh works against me. I mean, I, mean, I don't even get, I, I, must, I myself am a stumbling block out of my own gates. You know? 
Um, and it's constant. And we build deeply entrenched habits. Habits of thinking. Habits of desiring. Habits of doing. We, we are habitual people. And we have built deep-rooted habits uh, throughout our lives that, it, that, that work to, to enslave us and entrap us even more in ways of disobedience. Um, but Paul says in verse 2 that we... Get, willingly give ourselves over to two more enemies other than our own flesh. And the first is, in, in Ephesians 2, verse 2, is what he calls the course of this world or the ways of the world. Uh, and he says we're enslaved to following it, following the course of this world. What is the course of this world? Here's where I think it, it, it links to, to Revelation as well. If you remember in Revelation... Uh, in chapter 13 of Revelation, it talked about there was a, a, a beast coming out of the sea. And, uh, and, and I think that's, that, that's, that beast coming out of the sea represented Satan's activity in, in not only through governments and cultures of the world, deceptive philosophies, deceptive and, and, and errant uh, ways of thinking to, to deceive people, to deceive uh, the people of God. I think that that beast in Revelation 13, the beast arising out of the sea that wants to deceive the people of God, is what Paul is referring to here as, as just the course of this world. We already have, as I've just said, we already have inclinations in our own hearts that are prone to do whatever I feel like doing. And Paul describes it in, Revelation, in Romans 7, uh, you know, when I, when I want to do right, sin is right there behind me or beside me. Um, as soon as I see, do not covet. I feel covetousness all up in my heart. But Paul says, though, even, even though we're already at that fleshly disadvantage within our own hearts, uh, as soon as we walk out the door, the whole, the whole course of the world is working against us. I'm already weak in my own flesh, and I'm, I, walk, I walk out the door and I have to swim upstream. No, I, I, I think that's even, it's even more pronounced um, in the last 10 or so years, just the very presence of social media. I mean, you guys may not remember a world apart from social media. But, but a lot of us in this room do. And it's changed us. It just has. Um, I, I mean, I mean, I, you know, the whole talk is about Elon Musk buying Twitter. I, think, I wish if, if Elon Musk could wave his really rich wand, that he could, he could like, he could don't, you know, let people say what they want to say on Twitter, but just take away the retweet button. Take away the retweet button. Make it super hard for people to get traction with what they say. You know, like, uh, you know, it, the, literally the whole country, the whole world can, can get swept up in an idea before anyone has even a moment to reflect on it. Uh, and to see, is it, is it right or not? Did it really happen or not? Is that the way I ought to understand that or not? Man, it's just constantly working against us. We're constantly scrolling. Course of this world. Paul also says in Ephesians 2 that, 
that, that Satan is an enemy that, we're willi- that we willingly give ourselves to. He's referred to in Ephesians 2 as the prince of the power of the air. And he's described in the next phrase as the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience being just a phrase talking about unbelievers. Paul unapologetically says Satan is at work to deceive unbelievers, to keep them from seeing Jesus for who he is. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world, little g God, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus goes even further than Paul. Jesus says in John 8, when he was talking to Jews who had believed on him, but he knew that they had not truly believed on him, he tells them in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Jesus apparently didn't tiptoe around people's feelings, but that is stronger language than merely saying Satan is a deceiver and, 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 and Satan is an influencer that we willingly give ourselves up to, passively give ourselves up to. Jesus is saying that apart from Christ, we belong to him. We belong to him. He is, as to Jesus' word, your father, the devil. Which is why in Colossians 1.13, Paul would say that when God saves us in Christ, he delivers us from the kingdom of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And while in Christ, we now belong to Christ, Satan is still actively opposed. We saw that in Revelation 12, where, do you remember the, the scene where the dragon was crouched at a woman who was about to give birth to a child, right? And, uh, to try, that he might destroy it, talking about Christ. When he was born, he was ascended, but in that, the, the, that dragon pursued the woman, which is the church, pursued the woman into the wilderness. So Satan is constantly harassing, constantly deceiving, constantly persecuting. And, this, and it's this enemy of, of the three that he focuses on in chapter 6. So you can go back to chapter 6. Um, he's the first one mentioned in chapter, uh, in verse 11 when he talks about the schemes of the devil. He's scheming. <laughs> the schemes of the devil that we face. And in verse 16, he talks about the fiery darts of the evil one. What kind of schemes is he talking about? What kind of fiery darts is he talking about? Well, think about the ways that Satan is described, not just here, but in other places in Scripture. And there's some basic schemes that he uses. There's some, ba- Scripture is so helpful. <laughs> Scripture says, here's what's going on. He, there's there, there's cer- certain schemes, certain ways of working that, that are common in his work. Um, one, in, the, in Scripture, he's described as a tempter. Um, he was the one tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And when Jesus withstood those temptations, in, we're told, in Luke 14, uh, excuse me, Luke 4:13, it says that when the devil had ended every temptation of Jesus, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Until an opportune time. So 
he would be back to tempt again. That, that's a fiery dart that he fires at us. That's one of his schemes, that he puts temptations in our path. He can't crawl up inside your heart, but he knows what your heart is already in the flesh prone to do. So he puts a temptation in front of you. Another description, is, uh, according to Scripture, is that Satan is an accuser. He's not just a tempter, he's an accuser. He tempts and he accuses. Um, that's what the name Satan means, by the way. Um, and Satan is described this way in a lot of places. Um, in the Old Testament book of, Ex- of Zechariah, for example. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So one of Satan's darts is to accuse you um, and and, and try to cause you to believe as a believer, as as one who is in Christ. Try to convince you through his accusation, tempt you to believe that, that your sin is not a forgivable kind. Or to cause you to believe that, that, that Christ is, is not inclined to forgive your sin, causing you to doubt God's promises. He's an accuser. But in a similar way, he's a deceiver. He, he's described this way from beginning to end in Scripture. Genesis 3.13, God asked Eve why she ate the fruit. And her answer was, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. That didn't excuse her, but it's an insight to how Satan works. And he deceives us in all sorts of ways. He, he may deceive us, like I just said, to believe that our, my sin is, is, is not a forgivable kind. That's, that's deceiving. Uh, but he may, he may deceive us into thinking that our sins aren't serious at all blinding us to them. That's how Satan works from the beginning. And all the way on on the other end, again, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now notice there... Here that it, it says that, that the deceiver was thrown down to, to the earth. That is, Satan in the world to deceive. And not just him, but also his angels with him. <laughs> he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. All of them to deceive. And if you look again at, at Ephesians 6, I believe this is the most natural understanding of what Paul is referring to in verse 12 when he talks about the rulers, the authorities, the the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's talking about spiritual enemies. Like those who were thrown down to the earth with Satan in Revelation 12. He mentions this list of enemies three times in Ephesians. In chapter 1, Verse 21, he mentioned he said, he, this phrase, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Same order, rule, authority, power, and dominion. In chapter 3, verse 10, Paul mentions the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. 
Coming back to chapter 6, verse 12, Paul seems to have in mind that Satan is our greatest enemy uh, outside of us, but he's not alone. There are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places working with him against us. We, I, think, I, like I said it earlier, I think it's sweet that we, our natural prone as Westerners is to see the, the world in far too a purely materialistic, mechanistic way. There's an opposite end of the spectrum where there's a demon in every rock, but the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Um, this is a spiritual world that God created. And Paul has been more than clear in the opening verses of this passage that as we try to walk faithfully with Christ and live our lives and live out our identity in Christ, we can and should expect opposition from a host of enemies with Satan at the head of those outside of us and not least of all, our own flesh. But Paul doesn't dwell there. That's just setting up this passage. Um, he, he, he is sober-minded about the enemies that we face and the urgency of, of, of taking that seriously. But, it, but it's all to, uh, to set up the urgency, as we mentioned earlier, of understanding the armor that we've been given to, to, the, to fight this daily battle. So this is Paul's focus in verses 14 through 17. And he mentions in those verses six pieces of armor. In verse 14, he mentions the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. It's kind of going through like what would be like a Roman soldier's armor. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. In verse 15, shoes with the readiness of the gospel. In verse 16, the shield of faith. In verse 17, the helmet of salvation, as well as the sword of the Spirit, which is God's Word. This is actually, when, when you think, Where's the passage that talks about the armor of God? A lot of times our minds would go immediately to Ephesians chapter 6. As if that's the place where you read about the armor of God. But it's, it's, not the, it's not the first or only place that we read about the armor of God. And I think Paul takes this idea, the, the very idea about the armor of God, he, he takes that uh, from the Old Testament. Because Isaiah, in Isaiah 59, 17 if you just want to jot down that reference, Isaiah 59, 17, Isaiah talks about a breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation. But I, this is why I said earlier, it's helpful to go through this in one chunk because I think if we, if we go through the, the armor so slowly and so minutely, we can read too much into it because... Um, we can press the imagery too far, is what I'm trying to say. Because, why would I say it? Because Paul himself, in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, talks about a breastplate, but not a breastplate of righteousness, but a breastplate of faith and love. <laughs> right? So the, it's not like righteousness, the breastplate must be righteousness. If, if, it, if it's necessarily tied to that, then what is Paul talking about when well, he talks about a different breastplate of faith and love, you know? I think it's not necessarily the, the precise piece of armor that it's attached to that what's most important, but the thing symbolized. The thing symbolized. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, scripture. That's the armor. 
right? It just happens to be connected to helmet and belt and breastplate and shoes and sword, right? These are the thing, these things are the armor that God has given us to be faithful to Him. How are these things armor? How is truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, and scripture, how is that armor? It's not hard to see. Think about the belt of truth. So Paul begin, begins with truth. And that seems to be, again, clearly referring to the truth of Scripture. It is, it is an armor against the accuser. Your sin is not a forgivable kind. It's, it's an armor to believe the promises of God and the truth that He said. I'm not going to believe that accusation. I'm going to believe what God has said. To believe who it says you are in Christ. That's a, that's, that's, truth is an armor. Or the breastplate of righteousness. To know you stand righteous before God in Christ. Again, is another shield against, against uh, uh, Satan's accusations. Or that you have been born again to a living hope. Stand righteous in Him that, that you don't have to walk in the way that you're being tempted to go. The gospel shoes, it says in verse 15, a shoes for your feet, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. That describes to me someone who is so deeply rooted in the gospel, they are ready at any moment to, to, to tell it, to share it. Readiness. Someone that, that rooted in the gospel is ready for a battle. Shield of faith. Again, trusting God's word and what he, what he says is your identity and salvation in Christ. And, and the same with the, the helmet of salvation, except that it's, it's looking forward to the day that Christ is going to return when the battle is over. And finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. One of the things that has struck me for a long time is that it almost feels like there are six different pieces of armor, but there are six different ways of saying the same thing. Six different ways to say the same exact thing. They all come back to Scripture. They all come back to what God has said and who you are in Christ and all the promises of God. Truth comes back to Scripture. Righteousness comes back to Christ who is made known to us in the Scriptures. The gospel comes back to Scripture. Faith is what, in what Scripture says. Salvation is rooted in the Scriptures. And the sword is Scripture. It's six different ways of saying the same thing. But notice the other emphasis here in these verses. We are commanded to put it on. We're commanded to put it on. Put on the whole armor of God. It's up to us if we will take advantage of God's Word that we have so available to us. So Christ fought every temptation um, by asserting His trust in the truth and the promises and the veracity of Scripture. And if we're going to do battle in the way that Jesus did battle, we've got to do it the same way. We need to say one more thing here, and that is the power that we have to fight. It's perfectly natural that the next thing that Paul mentions in verse 18 is prayer. Paul tells them to pray at all times in the Spirit. Pray at all times in the Spirit. What does that mean? 
praying in the Spirit. Commentators are not uh, completely certain. I don't necessarily, though, believe that praying in the Spirit is some ecstatic utterance or ecstatic experience. Um, I don't think that would fit the context, and I'll explain what I mean by that. I'll tell you how I understand it. I believe that when Paul is telling us to pray in the Spirit, I believe it's Paul telling us to pray according to what the Spirit says, which is what Scripture says. It's another way of saying pray the Word of God. Pray His promises. Pray His will. Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and to pray His Word is to pray in the Spirit. Um, I'm gonna, Sophie is going to post in the group me a list that Miss Val actually sent me uh, a couple of years ago um, of a whole list. It's a little over two pages long of, of good Scripture passages that you can pray for people. That she does pray for people. She's probably prayed those verses for you, even if you don't know her. Um, but you, that's going to be posted in the group me just examples of good passages to pray and use in your prayer life it's not limited to those almost any passage you turn to can be an example of how you can uh, uh, formulate into a prayer like this very passage is an example Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, says Asked them to pray that he would be given boldness to bear witness to the gospel. So pray that for yourself. Pray that for other people. Lord, give me boldness to share the gospel today. Lord, somebody has told me, like somebody told me that 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 they they struggle with timidity uh, in sharing the gospel. Here's here is a a spirit given prayer request give them boldness um, there are whole there are whole prayers in in Ephesians some of them are on that list whole prayers like that is a literal Paul's like Paul tells the Ephesians here's what I'm praying for you and it's a spirit inspired prayer it's like God saying pray this um Pray it, or just outside of Ephesians, it's just across the page in my Bible, just in Philippians chapter 1, maybe across the page in yours, just look at verses 9 and 10. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. I mean, just, that's a great prayer. Just pray for people what it says there. Even if you don't know them. One of the great things we did at, at we, our Lakeview staff had staff retreat um, this past week. And we prayed for every single member of our church. Um, it took three days to do it. And we prayed through every name. I don't know everybody in our church. I hate to say that, but I don't know everybody in our church. I've come across, I come across names that I don't know them. How am I supposed to pray for them? I don't know anything about them. How am I supposed to know? It's like God is saying, this, this way. 
I don't even know him. Why can't I just go ahead and pray for that person that I don't know, that whatever's going on in his life, that his love would abound more and more, and that he may approve what is excellent, that he may be filled with the fruit of righteousness. You know, why not? In the providence of God, I think that that's going to work out. Like in the providence of God, that's what I was supposed to pray for him, even though I don't know him. He'll answer it too. And those, those are good, like I just said, that's a good general thing that, that are always good to pray for people. But they're also easily applied to specific things that you know that are going on in their life. Um, specific, just let, the, let Scripture itself provide the words and the emphasis of your prayer. You might know they have a difficult decision coming up. So... Philippians 1.10, Lord, would you help them approve what is excellent? Just that God, when you pray Scripture, you are praying according to the will of God. And God delights to answer when you're already praying His will. Why would He not grant it? He's already said, this is what I want. Man. And this is the power we fight with. It's, it's just as Paul began the passage back in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. I'm not strong. He is. Just knowing a lot of Scripture will not fight the battle. Knowing Scripture with prayer to God to help you trust it, help you obey it, that's where the enabling is found. And that will help us uh, to, to, to walk and do battle as He's admonished us to do here. I just think this is a, this is a beautiful uh, passage and a beautiful ending to a beautiful letter. While you're reading Exodus this week, go ahead and tack on Ephesians 2. Um, it's, it's, it's great. Um, do more of that. Do more of, just read a whole book all at once. Do more of that. Just do it. Like, I've already, I've told you many times, Leviticus is great like that. So in your Bible reading plan, when you get to Leviticus, just go ahead and get ahead of the plan. Just go ahead and read the whole thing. Bless you, bless you, bless you. Get, just go ahead and get ahead of the plan. Just read all, Leviticus all in one day. But do the same thing with any book. You know, Paul wrote Ephesians as a letter. They would have read it all at once. Any of his letters, just, you yeah, do it. Anyway. Um, God has equipped us with everything good to do His will. And He will enable us when we know and we trust His Word and we prayerfully depend on His strength and provision in the Gospel. Uh, let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for um, this, this Word to us in Ephesians. I pray that, uh, that You would yeah, continue to uh, remind us of what we learned about the world we live in uh, that Revelation taught us. And understand that what we learn there is not just a, a curiosity or, or a, just something that we only read about in, in, in Revelation. But the things we saw in Revelation, those, those realities are, we see all throughout Scripture. And we have passages like these that, that show us that God doesn't tell us, just tell us to persevere. But He equips us with everything good to do His will. 
starting with the gospel of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word and promises and the privilege of prayer. So, Lord, I pray that you would uh, make these things a, a rock in our shoe as we leave, that we couldn't, we couldn't quite shake this, um, yeah, this, this, this Word to us. Lord, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.